0: Welcome to the ME Podcast with the remarkable Professor Amy Edmondson. Some of you may already be familiar with her groundbreaking research on psychological safety, a concept that has revolutionized how we approach collaboration and innovation in the workplace. And now, her latest work takes a unique twist, delving into the facet of human existence that's both relatable and fascinating, failure. Failure, often cloaked in discomfort and apprehension, now takes on a compelling journey in Amy's hands. As you listen, you'll not only gain a deeper understanding of failure, but also find yourself inspired to intelligently embrace it more often in your own life. In this episode, you're in for a treat as we uncover the anatomy of intelligent failures and the secrets of creating a psychologically safe environment at the workplace. We also discuss about how to succeed by failing, what's the role of leadership in defining the context and standards for failure, and so much more. Amy guides us along a journey on how to fail intelligently, demonstrating how we can leverage human fallibility to propel ourselves and our organizations towards greater intelligence. So brace yourself, dear listeners, as we're about to delve into a conversation that might just transform the way you think about failure and the path to success. Enjoy! Our guest today is not your ordinary thinker, she's an extraordinary visionary. We have the distinguished Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, a role dedicated to unraveling the intricate web of human interactions that propel businesses towards meaningful societal impact. She's a trailblazing researcher, a beacon of innovative thought, and a true influencer shaping the very landscape of leadership and organizational psychology. She has consistently ranked among the foremost management thinkers in Thinkers 50 since 2011, culminating in a remarkable number one spot in 2021. In 2019, she sent shockwaves through the leadership book with her book, The Fearless Organization. And today, she's here to discuss her latest work, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to be speaking to distinguished Professor Amy Edmondson today. Hi, Amy. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today.
1: Hi, Delane. Thank you so much for having me. And what a terribly gracious introduction that was.
0: Of course, Amy, your journey in the realms of leadership, management and organizational learning is nothing short of remarkable. But before we dive into your incredible work, I'd like to take a moment to explore the path that led you to where you are today. In today's fast-paced world, where every step forward can feel like a leap into the unknown sometimes, what inspired you to embark on this journey of understanding, you know, when it comes to human dynamics within organizations? Perhaps can you share a personal story that led you on this journey? You know,
1: it, it really is a combination of direct experience and the inspiration of some mentors, some leading thinkers in, in the management and organizational behavior world. So the direct experience I had was as a, as a young consultant in some very large global but North American-based organizations that were, and this was in the late 80s, really struggling to stay relevant in a changing world. It's struggling to have the, the products and services they offered keep up um, with the world as it changed. And the more I learned about it, the more I learned about their challenges, the more I recognized that it wasn't, wasn't technology problems, right? It, wasn't, it wasn't, um, wasn't a lack of resources or brains or anything else. It was really the, the prevalence of problematic conversations, problematic systems that just didn't allow people you know, to make really good decisions together, combining their expertise and you know, figuring out how to change their organization. So I got interested in this sort of phenomenon of organizations struggling to change and stay relevant. And then I was fortunate enough to meet some leading thinkers at the time, Chris Argyris at Harvard and Ed Schein at MIT. And, and I got to know their work from reading it. I got to know them from, from meetings that, that, uh, that we organized. And I was absolutely mesmerized by the, the depth of their thinking and, and the opportunity to understand organizations through this lens of human behavior, right? human behavior, human interactions. And I just began to believe that that was where the opportunity for change lay,
0: I see. And you know, we also talked about um, last week during our alignment prep call for today that I actually received your new book, an advanced copy, The Right Kind of Wrong. And I spent my summer uh, reading and diving deep into it. And I must say that it It's really fascinating in this book because you talk about your own journey with your research where you started with examining team dynamics and error rates in hospitals, which failed in a way, but that has led you uh, to do further research on psychological safety and now into understanding failure. So Amy, I'm just wondering, can you please provide us an example from your own research journey where the evolution from team learning to embracing failure became evident and maybe even the intersection with psychological safety as well.
1: You know it's it's actually these three topics are not in my mind separate they're 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 three elements of a larger phenomenon which is organizational learning. And you know and the role of leadership to help their organizations learn in a changing world that's what's paramount. So I, I actually was interested in failures and errors at the very beginning of this journey thirty years ago because if if an organization is to learn one of the things it has to learn from are its own errors and its own failures and 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 so I thought okay that's 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 a really important part of this activity, right? This this sort of leadership activity of helping your organization learn is to make it easy for them to learn from errors and failures. And then I discovered, you know, quite by accident, as you describe in the opening story of the book, I really, I, I take the reader through this sort of surprise failure experience of my own, um, where I discovered, you know, by accident, that there were real and important, meaningful differences across groups within organizations in their willingness to speak up about error. And so that's, I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? We think of corporate culture as being a very strong force, and it is, but interpersonal climate is a local phenomenon within that overarching idea of culture. And what I found, what I sort of stumbled into was that, that depending on who you work with and your local manager and other factors, it was either easier or harder to speak up honestly and openly. And later, I called that difference in interpersonal climate psychological safety. And I always believed it had a crucial role to play in the team and the organization's ability to learn. So I became interested in team learning because of those differences I discovered then I realized if an organization is going to learn, an organization is a very abstract concept. It's very large, very complicated. Whereas a team is more concrete, more, more, more meaningful. You can get your arms around a team. And I realized that the way organizations learn is through the learning of their teams. That can be a top management team, that can be a production team, that can be a new product development team. But those are the entities that must do the learning. And in order to do that well, one of the things they need is psychological safety. And one of the things that they're grappling with is error and failure. So you can see this is all, it's all interrelated. It's all, and, but when you write a book, you can't write a book about everything. You know, each, each, each book, each research paper is, has its own focus. But in a way, I think of this latest book, right, kind of wrong, as the, as a, just another doorway into the same leadership content that we live in an uncertain, fast-changing world. And the only way to achieve success is by inspiring and engaging the talent in your midst and engaging them in learning processes, you know, day in and day out. And that takes psychological safety, that takes good teamwork, and that takes grappling with the reality of failure.
0: Yeah, and thank you, Amy. That's a great explanation on how these three core themes or topics intersect. And your commitment to these critical aspects of leadership and management has certainly left an indelible mark, right? And for many organizations and many industries. So I'm eager to delve into your new book, in which challenge conventional wisdom surrounding the word failure, and how it offers a new perspective on how we can embrace it wisely. So in the book, you explain the three types of failures, basic, complex, and intelligent failures, and what they look like, Um, without disclosing too much, because I do want the readers to sort of... um, experience and read and find out more about it themselves but for the benefit of our listeners who may not have read the book yet or is not familiar with these three types of failures um, perhaps could you explain uh, one of the main failures that we are focusing on which are intelligent failures what are these
1: so i will say it's important and and possible to learn from all kinds of failure But the intelligent failures are the ones that you want to actually have more of because they bring unique lessons. You can't get any other way. So an intelligent failure is an undesired result in new territory that that occurred in pursuit of a goal that matters to you. And you had a hypothesis, or at least you had good reason to believe that it might work the way you wanted it to work, but even though it didn't, and... The failure is as small as possible, to still to give you the learning you needed. Right? So new territory, in pursuit of a goal, hypothesis-driven, and no bigger than it has to be to give you that discovery, that new learning that you need.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think also based on my own experience, um, and for many and within our um, organizations, uh, it's quite interesting to sort of like spot for what type of failures are we experiencing, you know, uh, and to distinguish it. So in your answer, you provide some insightful examples in your book of how leaders and organizations have learned from intelligent failures. Um, Could you give us an example of a real-life success story, perhaps from one of your own clients or an example that you perhaps didn't even include in the book yet of where a company learned from a basic failure or intelligent failure and use it to pivot successfully?
1: Oh well, the it, it, it's hard at the moment because I'm so steeped in the book to think of an example outside the book. But I'll try. I'll try to do that. But but let me give you one in the book, right? Because I think it's such a classic illustration of this phenomenon. So Eli Lilly, the the large pharmaceutical company, um, some years ago had a new drug called Olumta that was discovered and designed to address a certain kind of, of cancer. And what you do when you have a new drug is first you have to test it for safety. And then once you've shown that it is, it is safe to take that drug, then you have to do the clinical trials for efficacy or to show that it actually works in treating the disease. And so they had a trial just large enough, just enough patients to, you know, to be big enough to be able to show whether or not it would make a difference. And that's a lot of time, a lot of resources, and unfortunately, the trial failed. It failed to show efficacy for Olympta in treating the cancer. Did not, it did not succeed on enough patients to say, yep, we can now take it to market. So that was a devastating failure at the moment. But the scientists leading the trial looked carefully into the data to try to understand it better, which by the way, for any failure, you always want to do your your postmortem, you know, to really understand what happened and why. And what he discovered was that many of the patients in the trial did quite well. The drug really helped them and reduced the cancer. But many others did not have an effect. So then he wondered, well, what's the difference, right? Is there a systematic difference that separates those that got help and those that didn't? And he discovered that those that didn't get help from the drug had a folic acid deficiency. So bingo, Eureka, right? Then, yeah, and that's just a B vitamin. So then all he had to do was add the folic acid to the formulation and try again. And the pivot was yeah. The pivot was that this drug now had this new, new formulation and they tried it again and it succeeded and it became a billion dollar drug. Right? So it was, you know, that's a classic example of clearly an intelligent failure. Nobody had a theory in advance about folic acid. Um, doing the, the hard work to find out what happened and why, making a shift, trying again, success.
0: Yeah, it's uh, interesting you brought up um, Eli Lilly, which I will touch upon it a bit later on uh, because I wrote a note um, and I had a question about that too. But um, now as we explore the concept of leadership and its connection to embracing failure, I'd just like to delve deeper into the impact of leadership behaviors. You did talk, uh, you did like link it um, to one of your answers a bit. Um, You say in your book that when failure occurs, higher ups in the management hierarchy are more likely uh, to usually blame factors other than themselves compared to those with less power. And fascinatingly, those with more power feel like they have the least control. So, Amy, could you expand on that dynamic? Like how do you think business leaders could start making a meaningful mentorship in this realm?
1: Well, let me say this comes from, this observation comes from beautiful research by Sidney Finkelstein at Dartmouth. And it just was an observed, an observed result um, that fascinated me. That the 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 so-called fundamental attribution error, which makes us as humans more likely to blame Things outside our our, our own control for when things go wrong, than to you know sort of think it's our own problem. Whereas other people's failures, by the way, we tend to think, oh, that, that they're lazy, they didn't try hard, they're not smart, etc. Um, so that's something called the fundamental attribution error. And what Finkelstein showed was that sort of the, the higher you go in the hierarchy, on average, more, the more likely you were to have that sense of. External locus of control, right? That that something else, not me, led to the failure, Um, which is ironic to say the least. Because most people think of those higher up as having more control, more agency, but this Finkelstein's research suggests they don't think of it themselves that way. So my uh, my suggestion would be that they sort of step back and understand that, in fact, they have. More agency than they think. And that it is a a sign of strength to acknowledge the contributions. You don't have 100% control over phenomena. Nobody does. But you have the opportunity to look carefully and deeply at the various ways in which you contributed to the outcome, things you did that contributed, things you failed to do that may have contributed. And that that's, in fact, a very empowering and wise stance for a leader to take. And not only is it a good role model for others, because that is the behavior you want others to engage in as well, uh, but but it also helps you learn and grow and become a better leader over time.
0: Yeah, definitely. I do agree with that. And Amy, your insights on the role of leadership in embracing failure they are enlightening. And it's also clear that leaders, they do play a pivotal role in shaping a culture of growth through their actions and attitudes. Now, the thing is, failing is difficult, right? So even if leaders are nurturing or cultivating a culture that embraces failure in the teams or organization, we as individuals may still be averse to that. I know I am. Like, failing is like the... Uh, it, I just irk at the thought of like me... um doing something wrong not doing something right so it's in our human nature that we don't want to make mistakes so how can individuals and teams make that shift to effectively extract valuable lesson from our failures and i guess my questions are in two parts the other is how do you suggest leaders handle situations where the failure has resulted in harm right especially in the context where people's livelihood or safety are at stake
1: Okay. Well, let me start with um, the idea that any kind of failure, intelligent or otherwise, is useful for learning. Right? There's, there's no, um, you know, there's, there's all failures bring us some learning. Intelligent failures bring a particular kind of learning, which is the sort of discovery in new territory. But all, all failures allow us to to learn. So the most important question and practice to adhere to is the question of what happened, right? Force yourself to start there. What happened? And in particular, what happened is a question that can and should be answered from multiple perspectives. You know, most failures that happen in organizations, not all, but most have lots of moving parts. Many people were involved. Many departments were involved. You know, any sizable failure, that's that's generally true. And to get the perspectives um, from these different vantage points really helps you learn and get the lessons that that failure offers for and, and information about what to try next. So resisting the temptation, which your brain will lead you to very quickly to say, like, who's at fault, but instead just ask that clean scientific question, what happened, is the important first step. Now, Remind me of the second part. What happened? Yeah, what's the second?
0: Oh, yes. The second part, it was about how leaders can handle situations where a failure may have resulted in harm, whether it's physically or financially.
1: We still start with that question, what happened? Because do not presume to know. Um, And when we discover as part of that, that work that things we have done have led to Harm to others. The very first next task is to apologize. To apologize meaningfully, to take responsibility for the shortcoming, what, whatever it is that that led to the harm, to clarify your intention of what of how to make amends and what you will be doing going forward. Right. So that's that's important both for individuals in individual relationships, but also for organizations for their communities or customers or or both.
0: Right. So, leaders and really anyone who is trying to embrace intelligent failures needs to be asking the right questions at all times, starting with what happened. Um, That just like gave me like a a moment in my head as I was listening to your answer because um, I never thought about it from that way like, what happened? So, that's a great suggestion. And I think I'll start using that in my own life as well. Now, follow up question is one of the key points you discuss. Is the balance between setting high standards and acknowledging that things will go wrong, right, at some point? So, can you share some strategies on how leaders can maintain this balance and create a culture of excellence? So
1: I I don't see it so much as balance as a both and leadership responsibility. And I think leaders are responsible for creating a learning environment where people can speak up, where they can experiment, where they can um, share failures uh, widely so that we never have to have the same ones twice. Um, and also, leaders are responsible for conveying um, enthusiasm and inspiration for high standards and hard work, right, that, that that sort of there's this, um, I think people are at their very best when they care about the goals, when they're committed to achieving those goals, but they also know they can be open and honest about what's really happening. Now, the most important sort of first step, I believe, in the science of failing well is getting clear about the context. Right? So the, the one of the things that differentiates you know, the opportunity for having intelligent failures versus trying to have error-free performance is the context, right? So if you're in a manufacturing facility, there is no reason why you can't achieve Six Sigma quality, right? There's no reason why you can't expect if you do the training, if you have a good formula, if you have good supervision and, and great, you know, team members, there's no reason not to expect things to go really well. So that's a context with low uncertainty and, um, you know, and, and and medium-high stakes, right? So that is not a context where you expect or encourage a lot of intelligent failures. You occasionally want people to sort of find creative ways to make the process a little bit better, incrementally better, uh, but that's not a context like a scientific laboratory or a simulator where you deliberately want people to be engaging in intelligent failures to push the envelope, right, to, to move the... the the state of knowledge further. So being clear about context and the most important questions that leaders can ask about to size up a context is what is the level of uncertainty? You know, high or low? And if it's high, you have no choice but to experiment. If it's low, it's really more of an excellence game and inspiring people to do what we need to do as well as we possibly can. But please do speak up about things that go wrong so we can catch and correct before they spiral Out of control. So one is how much uncertainty, and the other is what's at stake, right? Are human lives at stake? Or or is is this a very uh, big economic bet? Um, Or is is this a reputational risk for us? And when we're clear about what's at stake, and we're clear about the level of uncertainty, then we can proceed accordingly. We can either have lots of intelligent failures, if we're in a sort of high uncertainty, low stakes environment, um, or we can have lots of success if we're in a high-uncertainty, uh, high-stakes environment, and, and, and on from there.
0: Right. And that was clarifying. I mean, like it's important for leaders to understand that setting standards for failure and the context is important to make the most of intelligent failure. So thank you for that, Amy. Now, as we transition to our next segment, let's dive into another aspect of your profound work on your book, The Fearless Organization, which... Oh my gosh, that I'm a big fan of because this book places a strong emphasis on creating psychological safety in the workplace. And I must say within our own leadership team here, uh, it's something that we are still doing our best to nurture and foster. And in The Right Kind of Wrong, you note that most of us tend to sometimes feel a shame of failure, which makes us more likely to hide them, which of course prevents us from learning from our failures. So clearly, psychological safety is important to enable that sort of learning. Earlier, you also mentioned L.I. Lili. Um, and I said I do have a point on that. In the book, you talk about how Eli Lili introduced failure parties, right? They introduced it back in the 90s. And this is actually in contrast to um, Silicon Valley's fail fast mantra, which you argue it can lead to people taking unnecessary risk and not thinking their plans through carefully. So perhaps can you expand on that? Like how can leaders balance fail fast with embracing intelligent failures in this landscape of rapid innovations?
1: <laughs> well, I think fail fast has its place in the scientific laboratory, in an entrepreneurship um, context, again, where there's high uncertainty and and reasonably low stakes, where it's actually super smart to try something new quickly to see whether it works or not. And then you get to cut your losses if it doesn't. Now that assumes, you know, fail fast. The problem with the fail fast mantra is it's not very clear, right? It's not very specific. It doesn't say fail fast, but please fail as small as possible to get the knowledge you need. And that's what it means, I believe, right? It's fail fast, at the right scale, right, small enough to not cause harm, but large enough to get the knowledge you need. And the speed part means you know you're trying to get knowledge quickly so you can make progress uh, quickly. So again, it starts with context. You know what kind of context is this? What what's at stake? How much harm will we cause if we're wrong? And is that a, a degree? This is about being very scientific and systematic before you act. But but still allowing yourself to act quickly. But are we are we willing to take the risk of that bad outcome? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. If the answer is yes, it means you've thought it through carefully. Like we might be right, but we might be wrong. And and when you are in a context where you know, the, the stakes are high, especially in human safety terms you do not embrace the fail fast mantra, right? You you embrace the, okay, what ideas do you have? You know, what knowledge do you have so that we can get this right? Because that's what we're trying to do.
0: Yep. And on that point, you also talked about how intelligent failures are not intelligent the second time around. So in fact, you mentioned that companies should create incentives that motivate pilots to fail well as it would be littered with intelligent failures that generate valuable information. For example, like succeed by failing, which sounds counterintuitive on the surface. Can you explain this idea of succeeding by failing instead of failing by succeeding?
1: Exactly. So I've seen this pattern um, enough times to think it's a phenomenon where a company will be innovating in some domain that's important to it and its, its customers. And what will happen is they'll have a pilot project to test the innovation and the pilot goes beautifully, right? It seems to be just a resounding success. And now we're ready to launch it in our whole market at scale and then that becomes a failure, a fiasco in some cases, right? And, and the reason is it wasn't ready. It wasn't really capable of being launched at scale. And the mistake that people have made in these stories is that they've overmanaged, almost micromanaged the pilot to make sure it goes perfectly because they've thought of it more as a proving project than as a learning project, Right. The, Whereas, you know, the the more successful or thoughtful pilot would be one where we deliberately stress test it, right? We sort of say if you have ordinary uh, customers using this with ordinary equipment or, um, you know, not quite enough customer service uh, folks on our end, you know, Will they be able to do what we expect them to be able to do? um, Or will they get puzzled? So you're trying to find out, you're using your pilot to find out, like a laboratory, to find out where does our beautiful new thing break down in practice? And then, that's such valuable discoveries, you can then keep tweaking the design until it actually functions the way you hope it will at scale. And so then by the time you launch it, it works beautifully, and it's a big success. So the pilot should succeed by failing because, you know, we're finding out where all the kinks are while the final launch um, will will succeed.
0: Yeah, Amy, the synergy between embracing failure and fostering psychological safety, as you've described, indeed holds immense potential for individuals and organizations. I mean, it's it's inspiring to already think about the positive impact it can have on team resilience and adaptability when failure is de- destigmatized. But of course, someone even when... Leaders are working hard to create psychological safety. Individuals may still struggle with admitting their mistakes or even to take risks because they fear repercussions, right? There's always a fear and stigma um, that's surrounding failure in organizations, in in our jobs. So what advice would you give to individuals who are afraid to admit their mistakes or take risks for fear of repercussions?
1: Well... Yes. So first of all, it's not a mistake. If you're working on an innovative new product or service, In you're in new territory, right? And if something goes wrong, that's not a mistake. In order for something to be called a mistake, we had to already know how to do it. There was already a recipe of some kind. So it's it's a failure, but not a mistake. And I think that's a crucial distinction. So the broader answer is, it is absolutely critical and i write about this in fearless organization a lot to frame the work the right way so if you're working on an innovation project you frame that as something new and uncertain where we expect failures along the way in fact we don't believe we're doing our job right if we have no failures along the way because that means we're not really innovating that means we're just replicating something we already know how to do so you're you're clear at the outset of the work, that you expect the things to go wrong. And the smart people, the good employees, they're the ones who will notice and speak up about the things that went wrong. And so this is just, it's such, a, such an important thing because that's the framing that matters for innovation. That's the framing that will get the best innovation and the best work uh, from people. That's not the right framing for the manufacturing plant, that's not the right framing for the cardiac surgery operating suite, right? Those would be different framing. Those would be, we know how to do this, but we need to hear from you whenever you see anything that doesn't look quite right to you. You are the eyes and ears, you know, of this organization. So you're, you're framing it as the kind of work where we have really good knowledge, but we know because it's complex, things could go wrong along the way. It's a very different frame, but it's still one that says we need to hear from you, right? we expect to hear from you.
0: Of course. So that free framing is very important, as, as you've just shared in your answer. So I hope that our listeners that are tuning in right now would feel more inspired and also pick up the courage to, like you say, speak up a little bit more and also be able to distinguish the difference between mistakes versus failures and not see their Failures, whether it's big or small, as mistakes. And at this point, um, Amy, I'll just like to pick your brain for some practical advice for our listeners. We know that psychological safety is a critical component of failures. So, can you share specific strategies that leaders or listeners can implement to cultivate a psychological safety within their teams or organizations?
1: Well, I think it's really important for people to understand that this takes skill, So it's not a, um, this is not creating psychological safety is not a technical fix, you know, just turn that switch and now it's there. It's, this is sort of the, the, um, the realm of interpersonal dynamics, um, requires a lot of self-awareness and interpersonal skill in order for me to create psychological safety in order for you and I to work together in a way that is open and honest. Um, we need to do a few things well. One, we need to recognize the kind of work we're doing requires that of us, it requires us to be learning. Uh, two, we need to be curious. We need to ask each other questions, right? When, I, when you ask me a question, I feel awkward if I don't respond, right? So you've automatically given me psychological safety because you have said, I want to hear what you're thinking about this issue. And so I feel compelled to respond. If we did nothing else, Delaine, but had asked people to ask more questions, genuine questions of each other, we'd automatically have more psychological safety. Now, of course, you do want to listen to the response, too. It doesn't help if you ask a question and then you, you know, look down at your phone. But, but so it's um, it, I think we, people are at risk of underestimating the degree to which um, interpersonal skill and a, and a kind of a genuine desire to learn from each other is a prerequisite to psychological safety, right? So you can declare it, you can declare psychological safety and ambition for your organization, but now you have to figure out what do we need to do to build those skills in teams throughout, you know, top to bottom. There and there are, you know, there are some very good um, sort of online. Programs. The Neuro Neuro Leadership Institute has some beautiful work that you know you can go through quickly and um, has great content and and help people uh, learn. So it's it's a matter of committing to developing those skills, those people management skills that are so necessary throughout the organization.
0: Of course. Creating psychological safety requires a commitment from the top. And as you say, it's not a technical fix. So it is quite a difficult task, but an important one, especially for this quick-changing business landscape we are in that requires a lot of innovation. And I feel that in turn, it presents us plenty of opportunities to put into practice this approach of intelligent failure. Um, To follow up on that... Could you provide, is there a company in mind or a leader in mind that you've worked with that has successfully integrated the principles of psychological safety or failure into their culture successfully? You know, I'm just curious to find out what are the outcomes of this shift?
1: Well, I'll I'll start with a really obvious one, which is the uh, global design firm IDEO, which is in the, you know, in the, in the innovation business, right? That's all they do. So it's a, you know, it's a little consulting uh, business that that helps other organizations, client organizations, to innovate. So they they were um, co-founded by David Kelly, a Stanford engineering professor, and you know, then longtime CEO of the company, who just exudes that kind of enthusiasm about intelligent failure. And so they 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 baked it into their culture in the first place. Now I say this is an easy one because. They're in the innovation business. They wouldn't have lasted long in the innovation business if they didn't sort of embrace this way of of thinking and working and experimenting and trying new things and being willing to accept the failures along the way to the giant successes that they produced for their clients. Um, Another one, also very much clearly in an innovation context, is Pixar, um, where Ed Catmull, as CEO for a long time, in a much more sort of you know gentle, thoughtful way, modeled the leadership behavior of acknowledging his own mistakes to make it easier for others to do the same, of being you know curious about and interested in what other people were seeing, being non-punitive when things go wrong, because he understood that if you're punitive when things go wrong, the main thing that accomplishes, is that people don't tell you about them anymore, right? It doesn't suddenly make people turn into perfect human beings. It just makes them not speak up. Um, and then, in a very different uh, sector and industry, and um, it would be the remarkable turnaround of about you know fifteen years ago to ten years ago at Ford Motor Company, led by Alan Mulally, who. Um, I didn't study it at the time, but I have spoken with him since, and and read this sort of beautiful book about that journey called American Icon. But he systematically, um, you know, starting with his executive committee top team, um, modeled the behavior and rewarded and reinforced the behavior of speaking up truthfully about problems and 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 ideas, and really holding people. Accountable for that kind of behavior with and for each other. um, In a way that shows both how, you know, how um, there's a sort of a warmth to his style that's undeniable, but it's also a toughness that says if we really care, and we do, about this organization, we are going to have to show up in a new way with each other that's honest, that's accountable, that's driven, you know, that's humble and curious and ready to roll up our sleeves and do what it takes to turn this thing around.
0: Amy, thank you for sharing that inspiring success story. It's a powerful testament to how the principles of embracing failure and psychological safety can indeed drive positive change or innovation within organizations. As we near the end of the, our conversation, I'm just like curious, what's one piece of advice you would like to give our listeners who are looking to develop their leadership skills in the context of embracing failure or even promoting a culture of right kind of wrong?
1: I think the one piece of advice is become an expert context diagnoser. Just get in the habit of pausing to look around and and ask yourself, what kind of context is this? What are the stakes? What's the uncertainty? And that is how you will then engage in the appropriate next moves to engage people in doing the hard work that lies ahead.
0: Thank you for that brilliant and practical advice and for this wonderfully insightful conversation about psychological safety and intelligent failures. Amy, we know that your books are an important resource for leaders, and you've really taught us so much about failing forward and given some wonderful practical advice. Now, I know our listeners have gained some valuable insights that they will be able to put into practice in their professional and personal lives as well. But before we signed off, Amy, maybe you want to share with us where can we find your latest book, Right Kind of Wrong?
1: Well, the book can be ordered on the publisher's site, Simon & Schuster, or Penguin in the UK. The book uh, can be found at Amazon, of course, or anywhere that books are bought and sold or borrowed, if your library has it.
0: Wonderful. And if there was just one thing, right, you want people to learn from right kind of wrong after reading the book, the single most important key takeaway, what would it be?
1: If we could eliminate blame and shame around the topic of failure and instead embrace learning and growth and moving forward, That is the one message I want everyone to understand and take to heart.
0: Now, before I let you go, we could have gone on forever, but just one final question for me. I know you've just released this book, so it may be too soon to find out, but what's next for you? Your previous books and insights have truly shaped the way we think about leadership and how we approach innovation, so I'm sure our listeners are eager to find out what you'll turn your attention to next Maybe can we expect another book?
1: Well, I've been, um, you know, I started this book, um, I, re- I wrote it really during the pandemic. And and of course it took all my attention and I really hope that people will, will benefit from all that work that it entailed. But during the pandemic, of course, I, like so many others, got interested in the, um, what I'll call the employee value proposition, sort of the the experience of employees in organizations and how that's affected by purpose and meaning by growth and development opportunities, by culture and community. And of course, by the, you know, the, the material um, environment in which they work, including remote and hybrid um, arrangements. So I'm engaged in a big research project to try to understand that better. And I believe that will, will lead to some research papers and ultimately to a, to a book uh, to understand this new world of work.
0: That certainly sounds fascinating. I'm sure I'm not the only one who would be looking forward to this. And personally, my key takeaway from our conversation today, um, there's two things that pops to mind. First is to always think about what happened first, asking myself what happened when a failure occurs. And the second one would be the distinct difference between a failure and a mistake. Because sometimes when we fail, I straight jump into the conclusion that it is a mistake. So I think that was quite refreshing to hear from you. And I hope that our listeners today have their own revelations and have their own key takeaway from our conversation as well. So thanks again, Amy, for this enlightening conversation. I truly appreciate you taking time to speak to me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: To our listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey of discovery and growth. If you found value in today's ME podcast episode, please subscribe to our channel and share as we dig deeper into every episode in discussion as a community. Remember, Embracing failure and fostering psychological safety can unlock the path to success in your personal and professional life. Until next time, stay inspired, keep learning, and continue unlocking your own path to success. See you soon.